Well, you guys can take a seat, um, but it is so good to worship together. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Sarah. I get to be the Associate Director here at Calvary Young Adults. And really, just welcome to church. Um, you guys here in person, you guys online, we're really glad you're with us. Um, and it's such a sweet reminder uh, to remember that we gather because we believe that God is alive, that He is active, that He is on the move, and we get to learn more about Him through His Word, that it's powerful, that it's life-giving, it's effective. Um, and again, it's just so good to worship our God together. And tonight is actually going to look a little bit different than what we normally do, so I'm not going to give you any announcements right now, but I want to let you in on what this night is going to look like. Um, so tonight, we're actually going to start by just reading through a book of the Bible. We're starting a new series on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So we are going to prepare our hearts to hear a full reading of 1st John, and I'm going to invite my friends Jacob and Madison to come up. Um, and they're just gonna take time to give the word as it was originally heard. Most of the books in the Bible um, were manuscripts and letters, especially in the New Testament. There are letters written to the people of God, the church of God, discussing the things of God. And in this case, it's discussing the gospel. So just as the very first people to hear these words that are accounting the life of Christ, um, we as the people of God are gonna sit and we're gonna prepare our hearts to soak those things in. So I would just invite you right now uh, to be still and to ask the Holy Spirit to be with you as you soak in these words, as you let the powerful word of God um, just cut through the dross of your day, your mind, your hearts, um, and to speak a better word. So if you would join us in the reading of 1st John. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. My dear children, 
I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and he is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. This is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it is an old one you have had from the very beginning. This old commandment, to love one another, is the same message you heard before. Yet it is also new. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you also are living it. For the darkness is disappearing, and the true light is already shining. If anyone claims, I'm living in the light, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. I am writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I'm writing to you who are mature in faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I'm writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I've written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I've written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. Do not love this world nor the things in it that offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. But you are not like that. For the Holy One has given you his spirit, 
and all of you know the truth. So I'm writing to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. And who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist. Anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. But anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So you must remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. If you do, you will remain in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. And in this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life he promised us. I am writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. But you have received the Holy Spirit and he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. For the Spirit teaches you everything that you need to know. And what he teaches is true. It is not a lie. So just as he has taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Since we know that Christ is righteous, we also know that all who do what is right are God's children. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin, but anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil 
and his brother had been doing what was righteous. So don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings and he knows everything. Dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence and we will receive from him whatever we ask because we obey him and do the things that please him. And this is his commandment. We must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commands us. Those who obey God's commandments remain in fellowship with him and he with them. And we know he lives in us because the spirit he gave us lives in us. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the spirit. You must test them to see if the spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. This is how we know if they have the spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus came in a real body, that person has the spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. But you belong to God, dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Those people belong to this world. So they speak from the world's viewpoint and the world listens to them. But we belong to God and those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they do not listen to us. That is how we know if someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. 
This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the son of God have God living in them and they live in God. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by his baptism in water 
and by shedding his blood on the cross. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit, who is truth, confirms it with his testimony. So we have these three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And all three agree. Since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about his Son. All who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about his Son. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our request, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. If you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give that person life. But there is sin that leads to death, and I'm, and I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. We know that God's children do not practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the only true God, and He is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. God, thank you so much for the gift of eternal life for the sacrifice of your son. I just pray for anyone in here right now that has never experienced your love to its full depths, God, that you just wash over them tonight and for the rest of their days, God, that you just draw them close and you just let them know how faithful you are. No matter what they've done, God, you will forgive. Thank you for never leaving us behind, God. Thank you for being a light in our life and for showing us the path, God. May we just be vessels of your light and your love 
to this dark world, God. Thank you for all that you have given us and all that you are gonna do for us, God. May we just forever be in service to you and only you. In Jesus' name. You know, one of the most ancient stories in the Bible is a story that comes to us from the book of Genesis in chapter 26. And what happens in this story is there's a man named Jacob. And Jacob, it says he falls asleep in this particular place. And after falling asleep, he has this dream where he sees God and there's this ladder with angels ascending and descending from heaven. And he has this moment where he recognizes the presence of God. And he wakes up from that dream after all of his exhaustion, his encounter with God. And he says these words that echo through eternity. He says, surely God was in this place and I did not know it. I was sitting there listening to that scripture reading, sitting there just listening to the words of 1 John, listening to that entire passage, that entire letter being let read over us. And you know what occurred to me? And just in that moment, it was just like, surely God is in this place. Anyone else experience that? Anyone else feel that? Anyone else sense that? That when the word of God goes out, it's like the spirit and the presence of God is in this place. Like, I don't want you to miss that. Like if you've come in here exhausted or tired or overwhelmed or stressed out or just done with the world and all of its nonsense, I want you to know that the God of the universe is in this place tonight. Anyone else agree with that? Anyone else for that? We're here tonight because God meets us here. And so as we turn toward the scriptures tonight, as we look toward 1 John, this passage that we've looked at this evening, I want us to do so with the reverence and the awareness that when the word of God goes out, Isaiah 55, God promises it will not return void. Like in other words, every single time God speaks, he accomplishes exactly what he wants in your life. That there is no one here by accident tonight and God, through the reading of his word tonight, is doing something in your heart, even if you're in denial about it. That's what's happening here tonight. Here's our task in the next few minutes here. It's real simple. Um, this fall, we're going to be looking at this letter, this passage of 1 John. And we're going to be seeing what John has to say. And I really believe it's a word in season for our ministry, for our lives, for what we're going through, for what you're going through. I just don't believe there's anyone here who would not benefit from thinking deeply about this passage of 1 John. And so tonight, my task is simple. I just want to breeze us through, give us an overview of the first chapter of 1 John. After I do that, in just a couple minutes here, we're going to take communion together. And then after we take communion, we're going to sing a few more songs of praise and worship to the God who is here. So that's the plan. Uh, in just a few minutes, we're going to take communion. So if you walked in here tonight and did not get a communion cup, um, during the, the little break there, there's these three tables. You can go grab a communion cup in the next few minutes. We are going to take communion here. If you are listening online and want to gather some communion supplies, I want to invite you to do that right now so that you can join in fellowship with us here tonight uh, while we take communion. So that's the plan. We're going to breeze through the first chapter. We're going to take communion. We're going to sing, uh, and we're going to see what the Holy Spirit of God wants to do. So first John chapter one, verse one, here's how the, the, the letter begins. It says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes and which we have looked at with, and in which our hands have touched. So this letter begins with an introduction where John is establishing his credibility he says, this thing I'm talking about happened, I was there since the beginning. 
He, he says, I've heard about it with my own ears. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've touched it with my own hands. I want you to know this letter of 1 John we're looking at is written by John the Apostle. John, one of the original 12 who was with Jesus. John, who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and laughed with Jesus and ate meals with Jesus and built fires with Jesus and wandered around with Jesus. This is who we're talking about. This is the John who it says that is the beloved disciple that Jesus loved. This is John who leaned up against Jesus' chest at the, the, the Last Supper. This is John the Apostle, this one who Jesus dearly loved, writing to us to let us know what he saw, what he touched, and what he heard. Uh, like in other words, I want to put it to you this way tonight, that John is an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I want you to know what we're going to read this fall as we go through this letter of 1 John is not someone's ideas or speculations or what they heard or what they think about Christianity. It's from a guy who saw Jesus face to face. So even if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian or you're listening online, you're not even sure if you buy into the whole Bible thing. You don't have to buy into Christianity or the Bible thing to know that this is an eyewitness of Jesus telling us what he saw, what he touched, what he heard. I want us to listen to this closely. This is an eyewitness of Jesus and he has something to say. In the back half of verse one, it says, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. This whole letter that we're gonna read here this fall, this letter we're gonna work our way through of 1 John is a proclamation about the word of life. If you know the gospel of John written by the same author of this letter, it begins with this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And John is using the word, word, logos, in the Greek language to refer to God himself. But then stunningly enough, in chapter 1 of John, so this goes back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Like in other words, Jesus is the word of God, the God of the universe, the eternal one made flesh. And the entire letter of 1 John is a proclamation concerning the word of life. In other words, it is a proclamation concerning Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and don't miss this, what that means for you. This is not just John speculating or thinking about something. It is about something he is proclaiming. And here's what he's proclaiming. I want you to know that John's letters are about how to live in light of the gospel. I want you to see this all throughout John's letter. Every single week, it'll return to, what does it mean to live in light of the gospel? This good news of Jesus. And so if you're going to understand First John, if you're going to get what this thing's all about this fall, if you're going to really get your mind and heart around what we're going through this fall, you have to understand the message of the gospel. I want to show you this word gospel here in the original language. The word gospel in the Greek language, you'll see it here, is the word euangelion. It's a combination of two words, the word you in Greek and angelion, or actually angel, which means messenger. It is a good message. It is good news. We use this same thing, this word, this prefix you, in all sorts of ways in our culture today. If you've been to a funeral, you'll know that someone will get up and give a eulogy. Eulogy is just the word you, which is good, and logos, which is word. It's a eulogy. Even when people talk about euthanasia, they talk about a good death. That's what they're referring to in that term. This is the euangelion. It is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. In the ancient world, the word gospel wasn't even a particularly religious term. In fact, the word gospel was usually used by the Roman Empire, not by religious people. And here's what it would be. 
the Roman Empire would go out into a foreign and distant land and they would conquer the people. They would have a great military victory. And then they would pick one of the soldiers who won the military victory and they'd say, hey, you go back and let everyone know. And so he would run back into town and he would announce that he has good news of great joy for all people. And he would announce the victory of Rome. And I want you to know that when we talk about the gospel, what we are talking about is the good news of great joy for all people. But it is not the victory of Rome that we celebrate. It is the victory of God. It is the very victory of God on your behalf for your sins and for your salvation. So when we announce this good news, this gospel, this euangelion, it is an announcement to the world. It is not a command. It is not telling you to do something. The good news of Jesus, the gospel, is not a command to do anything with your life. It is an announcement about something that has already happened on your behalf. The great victory of God. In fact, if I'm going to put the gospel to you in this way, I want us to be clear on this. I want to give you four words to remember when it comes to the gospel. Here's the gospel in four words. God, sin, Christ, response. Those four words. In fact, I want to say it together. Can we say it together? Can we do that tonight? All right. God, sin, Christ, response. Those four words, if you're ever wondering, what's the gospel? How do I share the gospel with someone? How do I share it with my roommate or my coworker or my mother? God, sin, Christ, response. That's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion and we're going to sing. I'm going to walk you through this. Number one, God. I want you to see this verse in 1 John. It comes out of 1 John chapter 1 and 5. It says, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. By the way, anytime the Bible says, this is the message you're supposed to pay attention to, underline, circle, highlight, memorize that, okay? Here's what it says. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Like the first declaration that is made about God in the book of 1 John is that God is light. God is holy. God is different. God is perfect. God is pure. God is righteous. It is defining who God is for us. And I want us to understand that the book of 1 John is going to come out swinging right in the beginning and say, you need to understand this about God. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. And here's why I think this is important for us to consider for a moment. If you're going to know the gospel for yourself, and if you're going to share the good news of the gospel with someone else, you need to understand right from the beginning that God gets to define himself. God gets to define himself. And if you're not careful, you and everyone around you will twist it where God doesn't get to define himself, but rather you do. Like, let me put it to you this way. Davis, are, are you out here somewhere? Uh, Davis, 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 come on up, come on. All right, I want everyone to give it up for Davis here. I'm going to introduce him to you for a second. But Davis, I want you to come on up stage. Um, all right, so, um, yeah, hey, Davis. Uh, well, okay, hey, um, I, I keep calling you that, but let's, let's actually start with this. I'm going to ask uh, this gentleman right here three questions. Uh, and here's the first question I want to ask. Um, what is your name, sir? Davis. Davis. Okay. But I want to imagine that, that I've not known Davis. I've obviously called him Davis before. What I want to imagine, Davis and I meet for the first time. We shake hands. He says his name's Davis. And I go, that's awesome. Billy, real good to meet you. And you're like, no, 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 it's Davis. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I know you say it's Davis, but you look like a Billy. Just like, look at this. Look at this fella. Doesn't he look like a Billy? No? Okay. But I think he looks like a Billy. I knew a Billy once growing up. Look just like this guy right here. His name is Billy. All right, Billy, let me ask you this question. Um, you are part of the worship band, yes? Uh, sure. Yeah, sure. okay, you're part, part of the, the worship team um, that's up here. What instrument do you play? 
I play drums. Oh, he plays drums. But you know what? I don't actually like the drums, you kids these days, and your drums up on stage. Here's what I think you play. I think you play the banjo, okay? I Billy wish. plays banjo. Doesn't that just have a nice little rhyme to it, a nice little thing to it? Like, I just really feel like that makes sense to me. Like, I know you say you play the drums, but like, I'm going with banjo. Okay, so you're Billy, you play the banjo. Let me ask you a third question here. Um, what is your favorite fast food restaurant? Chick-fil-A. I mean, oh man, like, that's good right there. And we all do love Chick-fil-A, but um, it is closed on Sunday. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to go with my favorite place for fries. And if you disagree, uh, I don't know what to do with you. But we're going to have to go with McDonald's as you're actually your favorite. It is. It's so good. But imagine this. Like, I, I like that better. So I'm actually going to have to go with this. And so this gentleman has introduced himself as Davis, who is the drummer. He's actually the drummer in our band. Isn't that awesome? Um, and he's introduced as his favorite place is Chick-fil-A. But here's me up here going, no, no, no. He's Billy. And he plays the banjo. And he likes McDonald's. And he's sitting there going, why in the world aren't you just listening to me? Like, I'm telling you this. Like, how absurd would it be if I went to Davis and decided that his name wasn't Davis, it was Billy. He didn't play the drums, he played the banjo. He didn't love Chick-fil-A, he loved McDonald's. How silly and absurd would that be? It would be silly. And it would be absurd. And that's all I need from you. You can take a seat. Give it up for Billy. <laughs> And here's the truth. It would be silly. It would be absurd for me to hear what he is saying and then insist that I actually know him better than he knows himself. But let me ask you a question. Why is it that we think we can do that to God? Why is it that we actually think we can listen to God and hear what he has to say about himself, but then turn around and go, well, God, I just don't like that about you. I just don't believe in a God who would do X, Y, and Z. I just don't really, I think if there's really a God who's love, because we heard God is love all throughout this thing. A God of love would never do this, or God would never be about this. But here's the problem. God has revealed himself in his word. God gets to define himself. And listen to me. If God gets to define himself, here's what this means. It means that we do not get a vote. We don't get a vote. Like, I want you to know that right at the beginning of the Bible, God defines himself in the book of Exodus as, I am who I am. And I need you to understand this. If you're going to get the gospel, if you're going to understand the book of 1 John, God is who he is, and you do not get a vote. You don't get to sand God down to something that's palatable or understandable to you. You don't get to change God's nature and his character because it makes you uncomfortable. You don't get to decide that God is something different than what he is. Like, listen, God creates you in his image, you do not get to turn around and do the same to God. You do not get to be like, if there was a God, he would be like a bigger, stronger version of me. Like I want us to understand if we're gonna get the gospel, it begins with a God who is. You do not get a vote. You do not get to listen to what God says and then twist it to fit your reality or the 21st century or what makes you feel best on the inside. There is a God and he is who he is. Number one is God of the gospel. Number two, if anyone remembers, it is sin. All right, let's talk about sin for a second in 1 John. It says if we claim to be without sin, like in other words, if you think sin's a non-issue for you, if you think it's not a big deal, if you don't think sin's a real concept, if you don't think sin's a big deal at all, and why are Christians getting all twisted up about it? And why does God care what I do? If you claim to be without sin, it doesn't say that you're wrong. It assumes you're wrong. It says we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Like, you know what this is getting at? This is getting at this. It's not that there are people who don't think they're sinful. 
It's that there are people who have deceived themselves into thinking sin's not a really big deal. Like, don't you see this? If you're on a college campus at all, don't you see this? Like this kind of like freshman philosophy student who comes out and is like, what is truth? Maybe truth is relative. Maybe there's no such thing as absolute morality. And like, they just kind of get caught up in their head in this idea that there's no such thing as right and wrong. And I used to think I had to argue with people about this. But then here's what I realized. There is really no one in this world who doesn't believe in sin. They just might not use that word. Like when you talk to people personally, you see their moral outrage at things all the time, right? Like if you're hanging out with someone and something wrong happens to them, something gets stolen from them, they get cut off, someone walks up and punches them in the face. No one's ever gotten punched in the face and gone, you know what? That was his truth, not mine, right? No one does that. And yet we roll around like there's no such thing as absolute morality. And yet if you harm me, that's wrong, right? And so here's what I've learned. Like people love to float around philosophical ideas. You know what they've done? They've just deceived themselves. Because you know what? It's the same people who are going to say there's no such thing as absolute morality who are going to be absolutely twisted up about things that happen in our culture and society. Haven't you noticed that our culture, our society is actually obsessed with sin? That's all we do. We dig up an old tweet from 10 years ago and we see, see, sinner! But there's no such thing as sin. We have completely deceived ourselves. We are completely twisted ourselves up in knots. And here's the truth that you need to know and we all need to know if we know the gospel. Sin is a reality in your life. Sin is a reality in our culture. Sin is a reality in the systems of this world, in the nations of this world, in groups of people in this world, and in individuals in this world. Sin is not just us doing wrong things. Sin is a sickness that has twisted us up. If you've ever wondered what's wrong with the world, why do people seem so jacked up? The answer is three letters. It's sin. It's sin. And I think at our core, all of us know that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. There's something wrong with the world. There's something twisted up with the world. And the Christian story is that that thing that's twisted up with the world is animated by evil. It's animated by wickedness. And it's defined as sin. See, if you want to understand the gospel, you've got to understand a God in whom there is no darkness at all. And yet you've got to understand that in the human heart, in human societies and cultures, there is darkness And it has twisted us up. It has created a sickness that we all at our core believe that there is sin. And if we say we don't, we're just deceiving and fooling ourselves into something that we don't actually believe. See, the gospel begins with this word. It begins with the word God. Then it talks about sin. What's the third word? It is God. It is sin. And then it is Christ. It is Christ. It says this, that it is he, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. This reference, this word, this term in the old language was called propitiation. It was the idea of the animal in the Old Testament that would be put upon the altar to die and suffer for the sins of the nation, for the sins of the people. And in the New Testament, Jesus is declared to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That this sickness, this twisted up sin, this rebellion we've had against God deserves God's wrath and his punishment. If you were here two weeks ago, I talked about the fact that if God is a God of love, he must hate what is wicked. He must hate what is evil. And if God hates what is wicked and hates what is evil, if our God is a God of justice, he must pour out his wrath upon wickedness. He must not let wickedness slide. He must not let evil run unchecked. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came into this world to become the atoning 
sacrifice for our sins. And not only our sins here in this world, but for the sins of the whole world. The sins of all who would believe on him and call upon his name. Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice. The wrath of God is poured out upon sin, and yet it is not poured out upon you. It is poured out upon a substitute who steps into your place and takes upon himself the wrath of God. I want you to know that right at the center of the gospel is a substitution that takes place where Jesus goes to the cross for you so that you might never have to. Jesus suffers, Jesus dies, Jesus bears the penalty so that you will never have to. Let me put it to you four ways. It's this, that Jesus was considered guilty on the cross for your sin and for mine so that you will never have to be. Like, listen, I want you to know that the moment you trust Jesus, God will never consider you guilty for your sin because he has already put that guilt upon Jesus. He's had Jesus stand in your place. Like, can I put it to you this way? That Jesus got beat up on the cross for your sin, so you don't have to beat yourself up for your sin anymore. Like, can I just talk to you if you struggle with an addiction, with some kind of shame, some kind of past? You're just struggling with that thing and you just feel guilty and you feel gross and you just feel like you just constantly need to beat yourself up because if you feel beaten up and you feel like you've really beaten yourself up, then God may love you. Can I just tell you that there was a bloody, bruised man named Jesus on the cross who took that for you? You don't have to live in that pain. You don't have to live in your past. You don't have to be defined by what happened. Jesus took that so you wouldn't have to. Like, let me put it to you this way. Third way, Jesus was shamed on the cross. He hung naked and bloody and ashamed and humiliated, completely exposed on the cross so that you don't have to walk in shame anymore. Like, like, listen, you want to know the best news in the world of the cross? Jesus on the cross already outed you as a sinner. Congrats, you're a sinner. We all know it. Let's move on. Like seriously, let's do war with our sin, let's battle our sin, but let's not believe for a moment that somehow us being a sinner makes us uniquely bad. The cross has already shown that we're all sinners. Like on the cross, Jesus experienced the shame so that you don't have to live in shame anymore. You can just confess your sin, tell people, here's what's going on in my heart and my life and my sin and my shame. And then finally, Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that you will never have to be. On the cross in the last hour, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, cut off from perfect fellowship with the Father, he experiences the alienation that sin causes so that you will never have to be. So child of God, hear me on this. God's presence will never leave you no matter what you're doing. Then in your worst moments of sinning, in your worst moments of rebellion, in your worst moments of wickedness, the presence of God stays with you and will never leave and forsake you. Like who needs to hear this tonight? That in the moment where you were drunk at the party last weekend, God's presence was with you. That the moment where you were looking at pornography for the millionth time and you promised you wouldn't, God's presence stays with you. That in the moment of your worst shame and your worst mistake, God's presence never left you. He will never forsake you. Not because those things aren't serious, but because on the cross, Jesus was forsaken so that you wouldn't have to be. This is the story of the gospel. It's the story of Jesus stepping into your place, bearing your punishment. The gospel is the story of God, of sin, of Christ. And then what's the fourth? Response. Here's the response. It says in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. What does it mean to walk in the light? It certainly doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we have it all together. It doesn't mean we never sin. It doesn't mean we never stumble. Walking in the light is opposed to walking in the darkness. In the darkness, you're hiding. In the darkness, you're getting away. In the darkness, you're trying to conceal. But in the light, you just confess to God. 
and go, I'm a sinner, I am a wretch, I stumble, I fall, I've not done it enough, and yet, God, I trust you. It says, in the moment where you walk in the light and you confess that you are a sinner, we have fellowship with one another because of the blood of Jesus. It goes on to say this in the, in the, in the next verse. It says, but if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Next verse. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. When you confess before God, God, I recognize that you are God and I am not. I don't get a vote. You are who you are. There is no darkness. You are holy. You are perfect. You are light. I have stumbled in my sin. And yet Christ has stepped in my place to forgive my sins. When we confess that to him, what does he do? He forgives us of our sins and he purifies us from all unrighteousness. He forgives us in a legal sense and he heals us from the sickness of sin in our life. Listen to me. Here's the four words of the gospel. It's God, it's sin, it's Christ. And then we're invited to respond. To respond, not to earn it, not to deserve it, but rather to respond to the God who is, to respond to the God who rescues and saves sinners like us. This is the story of the gospel. It is God, it is sin, it is Christ, it is response. Now, I want you to hear me so clearly on this. When we talk about the gospel, we are talking about the way God forgives us of sin but I don't want us for a moment to think that it is just forgiveness of sin. Like, let me put it to you this way. Um, The gospel is about more than forgiveness of sin, but not less than forgiveness of sin. And, And here's what I mean by that. If you're convinced that the gospel is just, here's how you and God get right so you can go to heaven with him, you'll miss out on the grand scope of what the gospel, this good news of Jesus actually accomplished. But I want you to understand that it is never less than the forgiveness of sin. See, from time to time, people will try to convince you that the gospel is all of these other things, and it's true. But it's never less than the forgiveness of sin. Like, let me put it to you this way. Um, So Davis already named this, but let's just all agree and, and confess together as a church. There is one greatest place for fast food on God's green earth, and that is Christian chicken, right? Like, that's it right there. It is just beautiful. It's wonderful. And if I asked you, like, what is this place famous for? You would say chicken, right? Like, like, I get it. Some of you are like, no, I do the milkshake there. I do the fries there. Like some of you who just make us irritated, you're like, I do the salad. Like, no, like, like you do that. But I, uh, the salads are amazing. Okay, I'm with you. But, 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 but here's the deal. Here's the deal. This place is built on chicken. And you could say, yeah, yeah, they also have fries and they also have milkshakes and they also have salads and they also have cookies. And that's all true. But if you take away the chicken, it's not Chick-fil-A anymore. It's just filet. That's all. So if you take away chicken, Chick-fil-A collapses. It's like if you take away burgers from Burger King, it's just the king. Like it's nothing. These places are built upon something. And I want you to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so much more than just forgiveness of sins. But if you take away forgiveness of sins, you don't have good news. See, the forgiveness of sins is what makes the gospel apply to us. It's what brings us in. So the gospel is so much more than forgiveness of sins, just not less. The gospel is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into this world, the defeat of Satan and of evil and of oppression, the resurrection of the just and the new creation dawning. See, there's so much more to the gospel than just the forgiveness of your sins. But if you ever took away the core of what the gospel is, which is the forgiveness of your sins, everything else collapses in on itself. 
See, this is what Paul meant. If I can jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of this gospel, this euangelion that I preached to you, which you received and which you've taken your stand. Next verse, it says, now, brothers and sisters, this gospel, by this euangelion, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached for you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Next verse, it says, for what I received, I passed on to you a first importance, a first importance. What's the most important thing about the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Right at the center of the gospel story is the fact that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, died for your sins, was buried in the ground, and three days later said, death has no hold on me anymore. That's the story of the gospel. And because Jesus died and rose from the dead, you too can die from your sin and be raised to the newness of life where you will have eternal life that we heard about forevermore with God. And hear me clearly, that eternal life does not begin when you die. It begins right now, in this place, in this life you lead. And it is the same Jesus who got together his final disciples the night before he was betrayed He gathered them in the upper room. And here's what the apostle Paul tells us. He says that Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, the thing Jesus wants us as a church to remember forever is the fact that his body was broken for our sins so that ours wouldn't have to be. Like Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sins so that you will never have to bear that wrath and punishment. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Tonight we're gonna take This bread, if you want to grab your communion elements now. We're going to take this bread in remembrance of Jesus. We're going to take this cup in remembrance of Jesus. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. As we take communion tonight, I invite you to take and eat if you know and trust Jesus as your Savior. If you don't know Jesus or you're not sure what to do with it, you don't have to do this with us. I don't want to make a hypocrite of you tonight. Because when we eat and drink this cup and this bread tonight, we do so as a declaration that we remember what Christ did for us. Paul's gonna go on to say, don't go hastily into this. Don't just rush into taking communion, but take a moment to pause and realize that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Paul says, examine yourself before you take communion. So I'm gonna take just a moment to pause and I want you to examine your heart. Confess sin before God. Say, God, here's where I've fallen short. Here's where I've trusted things other than you. Here's where I've rebelled against you. Here's where I've disobeyed you. Here's where I've not loved you. Here's where I've not been kind to others or gracious to others. God, just confess that sin before him now. And we're gonna take this bread and take this cup together. Let's take a moment of confession before our God. Child of God, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Let's eat together. In that same way, Jesus took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins, shed in my blood. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and drink and remember that we have a right relationship with God because of what happened on that cross.
God, we confess tonight that you are God. You are light in you. There is no darkness at all. No sin, no wickedness, no shadow of turning or faithlessness. I confess, God, with my brothers and sisters here that I've failed, that I've sinned, that I've fallen short. I confess the ways I've been into the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The ways I've turned from you and walked in disobedience and rebellion. God, I just confess that before you tonight. And yet, God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his blood shed on the cross, his blood applied for me. I thank you, God, that that blood washes me clean. It makes me whole. It makes me right before you, God. So God, tonight as we sing, as we rejoice, may we be aware that surely you, God, are in this place. We pray it in Christ's name and all God's people said.